So um, if you know me a little bit, even if you don't know me that well, um, you'll kind of recognize that sometimes I'm a little bit, I worry a little bit, and I kind of panic and get into a bit of a flap. It's either about really minor things, like drilling down into detail of stuff that I get quite worried about or I get a bit panicky about, or big decisions like moving house or buying a car. So like the idea of buying a car for me, it's not, I mean, I'd, I'd like a new car, but it's more the process and the faff just fills me with terror of having to deal with people and buy stuff and salesmen. I don't know how to handle them. So there's just these little things and big things that I just get in a bit of a flap about. And one of those, I'll tell you a story, it was about me proposing to my wife. And you would think, well, that shouldn't be something you get in a flap about because you know she's the right one for you and you shouldn't have to worry. But I did. I mean, most of you, I've said this before, I think, but, you know, she didn't even say yes when I got down on one knee. She said, are you serious? You know, and I think, well, oh, great. I mean, I took it as a yes because she was smiling, so I just kind of assumed. And, you know, six years later, we're still together, so it's all good. But I decided in August 2008 that that's when I would propose. And again, those of you who don't know me you might think, well, I'm just a you know, rough, rough kind of guy from Lancashire. I have got a little romantic streak to me. A little bit. And I wanted to do it, I didn't want to do it in Blackpool with the donkeys. I wanted to do it in a, you know, a little more classy and you know, cultured way. So we were going to Riga in Latvia to uh, help on like, an English-speaking camp. Um, and that would be a two-week thing. And in between, you would only get like one day off, which would be on the Sunday. So I took the engagement ring out, had it with me the whole time. In fact, our cabin got stuff stolen from it. Fortunately, the engagement ring didn't, but I had this kind of heavy burden and weight of carrying this ring around with me for two weeks. And you know, when you fly with Ryanair, you think you're never gonna see your baggage again. And I've got this most valuable thing. Well, it wasn't that valuable because I was a student, but valuable in terms of you know, emotional attachment. Um, and I've been plotting and planning for kind of six or seven months that this would be the day that I would do it and it would be glorious. And in my mind, it was just this most amazing day. And I wanted, I had this plan and I had this intention that I would propose in Latvian. On one knee in Latvian. That's maybe why she said, oh, are you serious? Because she didn't understand what I was doing. You know, would you like a hamburger? But it was, it was this well-intentioned thing. And I, I kind of made this little promise to God. And I wouldn't recommend this. was like... God, if you can help me to learn this one phrase in Latvian, then, you know, I know it's right that I'll propose to her. But, you know, days passed. Days became weeks. We, uh, there were other reasons, obviously. Weeks became months. And I just never even went on Google to do it. And, and I got there, and it was when I got there, and people are speaking Latvian, I remembered the plan. I remembered I was going to ask her. And so I doubted myself and thought, oh, it must be, maybe, I'm, maybe I've got this wrong. I mean, she's great, but maybe, maybe now's not the right time. Maybe I do have to do it back in Lancashire with the donkeys on the beach. Uh, maybe I can't do it here. And uh, as a part of the camp, it sounds really dodgy, but they do this weird thing where um, if you're teenage girls, you get to invite one of the kind of camp, camp counsellors into your cabin. That's what I mean when it sounds a bit dodgy. Um, or the other way around, like the blokes got to invite. So they pick, you know, the adult that they were most attracted to. And remarkably... For the first time ever and the last time ever in my life, I got chosen by, you know, eight however many, I don't know how old they were, but this is why it's dodgy. And the whole time, it wasn't, it wasn't you know, it was just the whole time was, and I didn't push this because I thought, I'm not going to push you, God, on this, was they wanted, to, they wanted me to say in Latvian, will you marry me? 
That's what they wanted me to say. So they taught me, will you marry me in Latvian? And I thought, okay, God, I'm getting the kind of picture here that maybe you're talking to me. Maybe, actually, this is the right time to do it. So it's something like this. Vai too many prezi. So I've just asked you all to marry me in Latvian. You're looking at me blankly. That's great. But if I didn't know... Uh, before then, it was that kind of, okay, God, yes, I make excuses, but yes, I've got to follow you. Yes, I've got to do what you want. Yes, I've got to follow after the road that you've brought me on. And so the day comes, and we're traipsing around Riga, and I like to do the kind of cultural stuff. You know, if you're in a city and you're not going to go back, I like to do everything. Go here, go there. Don't use public transport. Walk everywhere. And so it was one of those long, stressful days where you're taking in lots of culture, and my pocket gets heavier and heavier and heavier. And then we're crossing a road, and I catch out the glimpse of my eyes. Uh, I'm going to call her a gypsy woman, but that's because she was a gypsy. It's okay, I can say that. And uh, she nicked our stuff. And she nicked my camera. She, nicked, she didn't nick passports, but she nicked sunglasses and other stuff that was all at the top of Grace's back. And the camera had taken loads of photos because I wanted to remember the day, that she'd be able to look back and say, this is where we went. These are the things that we did. This is where we ate. You know, as you do. Planning a bit of foresight. Romance, right? And when someone nicks your stuff, it's like being punched in the stomach. You know, why have you taken my stuff? And to be honest with you, it ruined the day. You're kind of like, well, today's not the day you're going to propose, is it? You've just had your stuff stolen. Nobody wants that. You want to go, have some food, and just go home and go to bed. And then remarkably, we just stood at the side of the road, and this woman, who is presumably one of the people that stole our gear, is holding the camera, holding the stuff, and comes over and gives it to us. So the very person that's stolen our stuff returns it to us for no apparent reason. And talking to our Latvian friends, that doesn't happen. Nobody does that. They have these kind of you know, guys that are built like me, watching over the women, you know, really stacked, um, really intimidating. And, and they're there to protect them because what happens is, you know, they, they nick my Bible and then they pass my Bible to their other friend and they pass it to their other friend. And before you know it, it's disappeared and you never see it again. And if you catch them and you take them on about it, you know, someone like me emerges from the shadows and you're like, oh, okay, I'm not going to mess with these guys. But she returned it. And so again, I'm like, okay, okay, I'll do it. And so I did. And... Uh, just kind of reflecting on that, you might think, well, what is the point in this story? Where's he going with this? It was almost as if there was no way that that couldn't happen in that moment. It was almost as if I could make as many excuses or as many reasons not to do something, but God would overrule or God would say, this is something you just have to say yes to. And sometimes for me, uh, in worship or in times in my life, there's just moments where my heart will just start pounding. But there's just something that I know God is directing me to do. And I don't know if other people have experienced that in some way. You just know this is something that you have to step out and to do. Something that you have to follow God on. And I accept that maybe we don't all have a story like that in Riga, in Latvia, on a specific day. And we might feel actually here this morning that God never speaks to us. That I wish I had a, a moment like that where I would feel so clearly that something is right to do. But actually the principle can be moved across to our work or whether prophetic words have been spoken over our lives or our home or our family life. Actually whatever we turn our hand to and whatever future we think we're going to step into, God has a plan and a, a fulfillment and a purpose for us if we would just say yes to him. 
If we would actually just do what he wants us to do. And that can be two things. That can be if we're already following him, saying yes to the things he asks us to do. Or it could be today, if you don't know Jesus, saying yes to the first time and following him entirely. You see, we all have this kind of longing for fulfillment and purpose and stepping into the things that God has for us. And often it's right there and it's in our present. We just fail to say yes. And I want to just look at this story. I want to read it to you. It's from Matthew 4, and it's like an in-between passage. It's Matthew 4, verse 12 to 17. And uh, this is what it says. Now, when he heard that John, this is Jesus, had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. I can't believe of all the words in that passage that I can't say territory. Uh, Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the passage that we've just read kind of finds itself trapped in a sense. It's there on purpose. But before that, we have this amazing story of Satan being incredibly annoying, as usual, for 40 days in the wilderness with Jesus. And he's being tempted and tried for 40 days. Relentless, difficult, a real valley experience that actually is an experience that none of us will ever experience to that depth or level. But he's experienced and gone before us so that when we do experience those things, we have someone who understands, someone that we can go to. And then the verses that come after that, all of a sudden Jesus is doing his work and he's healing people, he's delivering people, he's calling his disciples. It's an exciting passage. And in, in a way, the temptation bit is an exciting passage. But these five verses in between are a bit like... The moving on of the journey, the moving on of the story. But actually, even in something that seems like a non-event, we can see this kind of fulfillment that actually Jesus is stepping into the prophecy that was written hundreds of years before. That he's had to go through a valley experience, but he says yes to God. He says yes to the Father. And God meets him in that place. And actually, there's fulfillment and there's purpose and there's hope. Verse 12 to 14 says this. When he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested. Remember, John is a family member of Jesus, and he's the one who went before proclaiming the good news. And John is the one who baptizes Jesus. He's a significant player. He's a significant man in the story. So John's been arrested by Herod, and uh, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. He leaves Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. This is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. This is the start of him telling the world about his story. Telling the world, come to me, I'll give you life. And it's not on a stage. It's not in a stadium. It's in Capernaum. It's it's not even in Jerusalem. It's not with the high flyers. It's not glamorous. It's not rock and roll. It's like this backwater place, Galilee. It's a remote part of the country, and it's looked down on by more superior areas. So the people of Jerusalem would look down on it like, Galilee? Why are you in Galilee? A little bit like how I find my experience of being a northerner with those from the south. There's a few of them. 
you know, oh, them in the north. And I remember I went down to Bath. Uh, I worked in Bath in a public school for two years. And I went down for my interview. And uh, the guy joked and said, oh, do you have internet in Lancashire? You know, and he was being serious, half joking, but half kind of, yes, we do. We do, Carl. We have the internet over there. But um, I remember actually kind of engaging with him on that and saying, well, actually, no, we don't. We don't have heating either. Um, we all get angry and hate the royal family, and we all say garlic bread like Peter Kay. You know, it's not, you're nodding your head, it's not like that. We're not all from Bolton. Oh my goodness, I've just done exactly the same as that guy. It's not all true. You know, but the way that people in the South sometimes, I stress sometimes, go, oh, up them up north, you know, like nobody understands what this northern powerhouse is that the government are talking about because nobody ever goes there. It's a little bit like that. Jerusalem versus Galilee. Galilee? What's in Galilee? Everything that happens that's important should be in Jerusalem. So Jesus, if you're so important, if you're the savior of the world, why are you in Galilee? Why are you not down in Jerusalem. And it just made me think that so often, even as Christians or even as people, we get caught up in the glamour of life. I kind of mentioned this to Carl on the way over. And he went, yeah, it's like the X Factor, isn't it? You know, you look at the X Factor and near enough, every contestant has these terrible sob stories that, oh, this is my last shot or this is what I live for. I can't do anything else but this. And then they're rubbish. And you're like, really, you shouldn't be singing. You really shouldn't be doing this. Somebody has told you a lie and has told you you're gifted at singing when you're not. You know, it's not all the glamorous things in life. You know, but often we revolve around that, don't we? I want a new house. I want a new car. I need this. I need that. And what we live for actually gets relegated to stuff. We're living to get on the property ladder. We're living to have a bigger house. We're living to have a better car. And actually, to find that fulfillment and stepping into the things of God, what we need to seek and know is to just know Jesus, to seek him, to follow after him. And what I love about this, what I love about this kind of bridge story is that he's endured Satan in the wilderness for 40 days. And you would think, right, I've had a tough time now. I deserve, I deserve my moment. And he ends up in Capernaum. <laughs> He doesn't go for the glamour. He doesn't go there. He just goes for where the people are and he just gets stuck in. Some reward for not resisting temptation for 40 days. Galilee. It's not glamour, is it? But actually, it's amazingly glorious for Jesus. And he steps into actually the long laid plans that would say he would be in this geographical area. And he is there hundreds of years later. And actually, if we're Christians here, that's what we're called to, not the glamour of life, but actually just glorious things of being salt and light in the world, doing the work of Jesus wherever we find ourselves. You know, we, have, we each have these things that we can do, and it's not always going to be a picture postcard. We're not all called to do ministry in Barbados and live in Barbados, as nice as that would be. Probably. I've never been. I'm guessing. I've seen the postcard. But actually, being a Christian is hard. And as I look at the news, and as I look about different things in the world, it's getting harder and harder to be a Christian today. It's becoming more difficult. It's not a path to glamour. Because to be distinct in a world that says, have it all, 
when actually what we want is Jesus, is very different and very difficult. And so we read this amazing prophecy. And I mean, it's amazing that this was written hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, and yet it's so precise that actually even the geography, isn't that fantastic? The geography of what Isaiah says, that a light is going to pour forth, and it's going to be, just so you know, it's definitely him when he comes, it's going to be in a set region with a set people. I mean, I just find that staggering, that it would happen in such a way. It's so precise. And that tells me, yes, God cares about the big details in my life, about proposing or, you know, having a home to live in or where you're going to work. But he also cares about the small details. He cares about the little things, like the where or the how. It's the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, of them has a light dawned. And Matthew says that light has dawned now. That ancient prophecy finds its fulfillment now. And the word from Isaiah the prophet, the areas of um, Zebulun and Naphtali, the kind of backstory is they've experienced quite a bit of turmoil. It's not, it's not a happy place to live. You know, you think of nations today, you can associate places like Afghanistan, there's a lot of turmoil there. Iraq, Syria, there's a lot of turmoil and there's a lot of past, there's been a lot of invasions, there's been a lot of history. There's the kind of same story with these places. In 2 Kings 15, you can read about it. There's this king called Tiglath-Pilzer, probably. That's probably how you pronounce it. The king of Assyria. And he wages war upon Israel. And these two areas of Israel are the ones that are hit. And huge proportions of the population are taken away. Families are split up. People are decimated. People may never be back home again. It's a dark time. It's hard. Those lands are struggling. And don't you just love that even historically, like, you can trace back. So I love that we can read that prophecy from Isaiah and we can go, oh, it's in 2 Kings 15. Oh, this really happened in history. I can actually read about that in history books. You know, the Bible isn't just a, a made-up story. It's real. It's historical. It's factual. The Assyrians deported a significant proportion of the population because they wanted them to work. They needed people to build and expand their empire. And so Isaiah says, the people have been dwelling in darkness. The people have been lost. The people have been, it even says, they're walking in the shadow of death. They have no hope. They have no future. They don't know where to look. And the language that the prophet Isaiah uses and the one that Matthew relates here is he says, it's almost like the people are sat in darkness. They're just sat there. They've become used to darkness. Darkness is the only thing they know. And yet here is a light that shines. You know, if you're sat in the darkness and a light shines, what do you do? You have a choice, don't you? You can stay sat in the darkness, in the misery, or you can go towards the light. I remember this story. I was in Oregon on the coastline, and uh, I've got a friend called, well, his, his real name's Gary, but everyone calls him Magnum, uh, which you would, but it's his middle name, and he's really cool, um, as you would be if your name was Magnum. And um, he, he told this story, but he said it because there was a, it was almost like a cabin in the woods. It was pitch black, you know, you're under the stars, but at the top of this hill, there's like a little 
I don't know what it was, but you could see light streaming out of it. And so if you're sat in the darkness, what do you do? You go and see what this light is about. You investigate. You don't just sit and stay where you were. You see the light shines, and that's what happens here. Jesus steps in in time and history and shines his light. And he still does that today, and that's why we sing the songs that we do and why we celebrate, because actually there's hope, because Jesus has stepped into our time, has become a man so that we might live. And the light that shines is the fact that Jesus has laid down his life for you, that we might have a new life. He's been raised to new life so that we're raised to a new life too. That we have a choice of where we can sit in darkness or we can say, look, here's Jesus. Here's the light. Here's new life. What am I going to do about it? And that's the same response for whether we are Christian or not a Christian is we've got to say yes. Whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time. You see, these people then, past and present, were covered in darkness. But on them, a great light has shined. And for us today, whether your past is dark, whether your present is dark, a great light has shined in Jesus. And you know, Christmas, we'll talk about it a lot, that he becomes a baby. Well, he doesn't stay a baby, does he? And actually, he's the savior of the world. A light has shined. And if you are sat in the darkness, if you don't know Jesus, that is the spiritual state that God pronounces over you, that you're sat in darkness. But he's given you a light because he sent his only son for you so that you can walk towards it so that actually your life can be full of hope and joy and peace. It's amazing, really, that actually you can bring light into the darkness, the darkness of our addiction or the darkness of our anxiety or the darkness of our problems or our issues or our struggles or our anger. Whatever we struggle with, whatever darkness holds our heart, because it holds all of us in some way, shape, or form, we can be set free by walking into the light. I remember when Justin Larkham came and he spent the first five, ten minutes talking about the light, and I wondered, where is he going with this? Because I know he's got this amazing story about gambling addiction. But he was right, because he needed to see the light. He needed to walk in the light, and that would be what changed him forever. We have a choice, don't we, whether we stay and sit in the darkness or whether we actually step out into the light of God. And it made me think, actually, that so often we look to the future, don't we, for the light to come on. You know, we sit in the darkness and all we can think about is our present circumstance and we think, well, maybe one day the light will come. Maybe one day in the future the light will come and I'll have hope again. The light comes today. The light comes into your present. And so often we're so caught up in the future and what, what's God going to do for me if I'm a Christian? What's the future hold that we forget to just serve him and love him in the present? You know, I'm so glad that Jesus journeys and he wasn't just so preoccupied with the, the future, but he got on in the present, that he traveled to Galilee, that he went to Capernaum, that he stepped into the fulfillment that had been written hundreds of years before. I'm so glad he did that. Because it tells us that in our present we can seek God's face and we'll find him. That we can just get on with serving him right now. I mean, we might not get a sign from heaven that says, do this, do that. But actually, what we do have is uh, within scripture this, if you are a Christian, you are to live like this. You are to be his representatives. We're therefore Christ's ambassadors, 2 Corinthians says, as though God were making his appeal through us. And the reason I say that is because I watched this Open Doors video as a part of a connect group this week, and it was about Syria and Iraq. 
And it was about the Christians there who are persecuted, are dying for their faith, are having to leave their homes. And one of them was a pastor. And he said something like this. It's not word for word because I can't remember entirely, but it was something like this. He said, it's my privilege to leave Syria, but it's also my privilege to stay. We're God's ambassadors. And if all the ambassadors in Syria leave, then heaven leaves Syria. And I thought, wow, isn't that true? But you are Christ's ambassadors in Chesterfield. And if we're not his ambassadors, then heaven leaves Chesterfield. Just as heaven leaves Syria. If all of heaven's representatives are gone, isn't that about the worst thing that can happen? You know, this morning you might be struggling for purpose. I don't know. We, you know, we, we met on Friday, uh, me and Carl, and we were, were talking and planning the future of the church and, and the vision and getting really excited about what God's going to do. But sometimes as an individual, you can be thinking, well, what does God want to do with me? What purpose do I have? Not knowing what I can do. Well, actually, if we're in Chesterfield right now, so often we're, even with our vision, we can be so preoccupied with future stuff, which is right to think of the future and to plan and to get excited about it. But we have to get on with stuff in the present. Otherwise, it stays as a dream in our head. Nothing ever changes. We have to do stuff. And I know that's very, very bland and broad. But we have to get on with being his people. And, you know, you're struggling for purpose. Well, I'll give you one. You are an ambassador of heaven in Chesterfield today. That is your purpose. That is your role. That is your function. That is what you live and give your life to doing, representing heaven well. Look at verse 17. Because an ambassador doesn't just stand at the front and everybody looks at them and they go, oh, they look exactly the same as me. They have a message. They share something that's different. Verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And there's only, I think, one other place in Matthew where there's the kind of line from that time. And it signals a change in the story. It signals that something has gone on. At this point, Jesus has been born. We've had that narrative a little bit. We've, we've heard about John the Baptist. We've heard about Jesus has been tempted. And now it says from that time on. So it's, cha- it's a change, isn't it? From this point on, Jesus starts doing something different. And we read that he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. From that point on, he's preaching. From that point on, he's teaching. This is the start of his public ministry. And he's always calling people to repentance. That's like at the heart of all that he's doing. And repentance is a turning around. He's always calling people and saying, look, you're in the dark. I'm the light. I'm the one who has come to deliver you and rescue you and give you hope and give you a future and give you a life and give you a purpose. Because otherwise you're still fumbling around in the darkness. And that's what he does for the rest of his days from that time on. That was the message, the good news that he was there to rescue people. And that's the same message that we can have today. And that's why we started this church. That's why Redeemer King was born, if you like. That people would hear about Jesus. That a light would shine and people would meet him and be transformed. It's as simple as that. We don't have any fancy vision statement. 
We don't have a load of things with the same letter, great as they are. We just want people to meet Jesus because he changes lives. Because otherwise we're in the darkness. And it made me think of this, there's this great, this is quite poetic actually. So you'll be surprised I'm going to say this. I haven't created this myself, I found it. And it was this, just as the moon and stars are lost when the sun rises, so it is with our greatest achievement and our worth when we meet with Jesus. We think we know what life's about. We think we know what purpose is. And then we meet Jesus. And our, our other dreams, our other hopes, our other having a car, having a house, fade to insignificance against the value of knowing Jesus. And that's what he says himself. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek me first and everything else will be okay. We don't need to worry. Just seek me first. And I'll just finish with an example of that with Brother Andrew, who's the founder of Open Doors. And um, he came to Scotland. He's a Dutchman, but he came to Scotland to study theology. And um, now Open Doors, if you don't know, is the charity, and it serves the persecuted church, Christians that either lose their jobs or their lives or all sorts of things just for having a faith in Jesus. They are repressed. And so Open Doors goes in to help and equip and love them and serve them in over 60 of the hardest places to be a Christian in the world today. And he started this amazing movement, Open Doors. But it didn't start in that way in one sense. His early story was that God was saying, I want you to do this. I want you to follow me. I want you to go to Warsaw. I've opened up a door for you to go and to do some ministry and meet some people in what was then the closed off East. You know, the Eastern Bloc. You wouldn't do ministry there. It was very closed off. And he would make excuses. He would say, yes, God, but I'm lame. I think he had a problem with his ankle. Um, So he'd say, yes, God, okay, I'll do it. But you know, I'm lame. You know, I can't walk like everybody else can. Or he'd say, well, yes, God, but you know I'm uneducated. And so he kept making these excuses, and he didn't go. He didn't step into the fulfillment and the plans that God had until he just said yes. Those conditions were gone, and he just said yes. And he went, and now we have open doors as it is today, serving thousands and thousands of people because he said yes. Because he was faithful and followed after God. Because he didn't want to stay in the darkness but he wanted to bring light by knowing Christ and introducing him to people. And that's, if we're struggling for purpose this morning, there's two things I just want to say to finish. One is, we just have to say yes to God. And that can be as simple as, I'm going to, it was not simple actually. It's a simple concept, but it's very difficult to put into practice of being his ambassador, representing him well today, at work, saying yes to God, I'm going to live differently. My tongue will not speak in the same way that everybody else's does. Saying yes to God in the family life. Well, everybody else treats their family in this way, but I'm going to lay down my life for my wife. Saying yes to God in all sorts of ways, with our finances, with our family, with how we support people, how we love people, how we bless people. It's the whole of our lives. And there is no greater purpose for your life than serving Jesus. There is nothing better that you can give your life to than following after him wholeheartedly. And for those that don't know him this morning, the same is true. There is nothing, there is nothing in this life like actually coming out of the darkness and meeting Jesus and having your life transformed. And I tell you, it will give you purpose like never before. And although these verses are short and they're kind of a bridge passage, sometimes our life can feel like that. 
that we're on a journey and we lack purpose. But actually, all we have to do is say yes to God.